as you can tell there from your insert, um, it seems to me that uh, with the, uh, the, the passing of, of Billy Graham, uh, it's as almost as if a, a certain time period um, in church history has closed. And, um, you know, we, uh, we have come to, I think, uh, as we've been reading here in the book of Revelation, we, we have come, I think, to a very important time um, as we stand on the precipice of these things happening. And uh, we, you know, as you look back at what God has done over the last 50, 60 years, that uh, we, we don't know uh, if uh, there's going to be some great evangelistic reviving. Because um, one of the things that I've come to realize is that the reason that you get about every 50 years in church history is you look back, you get a reviving. Because God is preparing, because without the Holy Spirit reviving, the church would die. Do you realize that? It would just die out. It's because of his Holy Spirit empowering us, enabling us, and these revivals that have taken place, awakenings, whatever you want to call them, have taken place every 40, 50, 60 years, about every generation. Uh, they have basically prepared the church to go on to the next generation. And uh, so if we don't get that revival, I'll tell you what, hold on to your horses because um, we're going to be taken out of here. And these very times that we read about in Revelation will, will, will kick in. Uh, so with that, let's turn to Revelation uh, chapter 10. Uh, Revelation chapter 10, a short chapter. And we're just going to take on that this morning. And it's sort of uh, kind of a pause here between chapter 9 and uh, what's going to take place where, as we said before, uh, looking at uh, Revelation in a chronological way that uh, here in chapter 10, we are somewhere in the midpoint, uh, what would be called the midpoint, uh, perhaps uh, the latter half of the first half, uh, the midpoint of the tribulation period. And here's what John sees. He says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roar roars, and when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from, from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered. I do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. And as he declared to his servants, the prophets, and then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, 
Go take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so I went to the angel and I said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. And then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach had become bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, that is languages and kings. And with that, let's pray. Lord, we praise you today. We are so thankful that you are Lord of heaven and earth. And we thank you, Lord, for the marvelous work of salvation, the work you accomplished upon the cross that has made our meeting here possible today. And Lord, uh, as we were singing a minute ago, Lord, reminded in that song that there is power in the name of Jesus. Lord, power to save the soul, power to change the heart of the life, and power to change our destiny. And Father, we look to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' precious name that, Lord, you would break every chain. Lord, whatever might be binding up the life, the heart, the soul, the mind. Lord, we pray for your glorious truth. We pray for the working of your Holy Spirit. For, Lord, we're gathered today to glorify you. We're gathered to honor you, to please you, to praise you. And we invite you, Lord. Lord, you're our teacher. You're our master. Lord, you're our pastor. We invite you that by your spirit, Lord, you might come. You might walk among us, Lord. And that, Lord, you might, in only the way that you can, Lord, speak into our hearts. Speak into our lives. For, Father, we pray and ask these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10 here is sort of a break in the action, an interlude, if you will, uh, relative to the hellish events that we were uh, talking about last week in chapter 9. And it seems to be if God is just giving uh, humanity another opportunity, he's giving them, if you will, a last shot, a final opportunity for glory. Um, that's one of the things that, uh, uh, as we looked at chapter 7 in the 144,000, uh, these are going to be really uh, Holy Spirit-energized individuals, um, you know, Spirit-filled Apostle Pauls uh, to preach the gospel. Look at, look at the impact. They said that Billy Graham um, had, had opportunity to speak to over 200 million people. And, uh, and I heard also an interesting statistic that... that uh, he maybe spoke to that many people, but he, had, he, he has influenced over a billion people. And I wonder how many people in America today, um, you know, they, they, they owe a debt in a sense to the ministry of Billy Graham uh, and his preaching and the impact of it. Um, you know, um, you hear all the time of somebody that, you know, gave their life to, to Christ in a Billy Graham crusade. But there's coming a day there's going to be 144,000 of them uh, and this is going to be God's final last call and last opportunity uh, that they might give their lives, they might commit their lives to Jesus Christ. Uh, I was thinking about uh, Isaiah 45, where uh, the, the Lord basically says there through Isaiah, he says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all you ends of the earth. 
Uh, and that's going to be happening during, the, during this particular time that the gospel is going to be going out for those uh, that probably, probably somebody that you know, maybe somebody that we love, maybe somebody that we, I think there's going to be a lot of people that when the tribulation comes, they're primed. They are totally primed. They've heard about the rapture. And then when the church is taken out, they finally realize, hey, it really did happen. Um, you know, my kooky brother, my kooky sister, I thought they were, you know, I thought they were, you know, um, uh, impacted by the drugs or something that they used to take or whatever the case may be. Or, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, when you, when, you, when you come to the Lord, oh, they get religion and they get kind of crazy. Uh, so they, they kind of just uh, uh, look at everything you say through that lens uh, that there, there's something, you know, something wrong with people or whatever uh, when they get religion in their life. But the fact of the matter is, uh, uh, it, something right has happened. You know, God Almighty, our Creator, has come into our life and He gives us a whole nother divine and a blessed, a wonderful uh, perspective. Uh, we entitled our little piece this morning because of the reference in there, Mystery Solved. You know, the Bible contains a lot of mysteries. And of course, we know this when we first get saved, we come to the Bible. It's like, whoa, uh, we begin to look at the Bible. We, we, you know, we attempt to read it. Uh, we struggle with it. We wrestle with it. But you know, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he begins to interpret and explain those things that are in the Bible. And that's one of the things that we find as we navigate, as we move through our Christian journey, our Christian life, the Holy Spirit of God is explaining things to, to us, you know, applying his truth into different situations and circumstances where all of a sudden we see how that truth, you know, operates in our life more than just some truth or some vague truth that we find or some, you know, some, some principle on paper. Uh, in the scripture. You know, first of all, I think we read the Bible and we get the principles, you know, in our head, but all of a sudden we find the Holy Spirit wanting to apply those things, you know, in our lives, you know, in through our particular uh, experience. So as we begin to change and, and he begins to open up our heart, we begin to understand more and more and the things that were once hidden are now revealed. That's what a mystery is, basically. Something that was once hidden. Uh, and so for the unbeliever, Everything in Christ. As a matter of fact, not everything just in Christ, but everything in life is a mystery. There's no way that you can understand how life works, um, you know, to the, to, to the deeper degree uh, until you really have the Holy Spirit in your heart, in your mind, giving you understanding, giving you the ability to, you know, sort out the very difficult things. You know, so many people, they can't understand, you know, what, why is this happening? You, you hear that expression. Uh, you know, why is this happening? Uh, like, for instance, uh, how many families in our nation was impacted this week by that shooting uh, down in Florida? And I would imagine many of those who have been directly impacted by that are questioning, you know, why, you know, wh how, did, how could this ever happen? Well, you know, part of, I, you know, part of what you understand in the human psyche that's unregenerate, that's not Christian, is that they simply believe that human beings are basically good, intrinsically good. And you see, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are sinners and, and that we need a Savior, and we are capable of some of the most heinous and awful things. And, and, and that's why so often when somebody, when a crisis comes into our life or when uh, we even maybe perpetrate something sinful or, or even wicked, 
we realize, you know, uh, we realize our own condition. We realize our own particular situation. And oftentimes that just simply opens the door for us to invite Christ in our lives because we realize, you know, what our own life, what our own hands, what our own thinking is capable of. And you can, again, you can only get that perspective and understand that when the Spirit of God is in your heart and in your life, and He's showing you that, giving you that perspective, giving you that understanding. Now, as we come to the Bible, there are several uh, mysteries that the Bible basically uncovers, and, and perhaps you've already seen uh, you know, a number of them. Uh, I'm not going to go basically into all the different mysteries, but the one thing we know is they all find their answer in Jesus Christ. And you know what? The mystery of life finds its answer in Jesus Christ. Amen? When, when you come to him all of a sudden, I, I can remember, I can distinctly remember thinking the very day that Christ came into my life in 1975 that I had all these questions. And all, and all I could think about, they were, it, was, it was a list as long as my arm. But that afternoon, I came to Christ, and I was driving home uh, from Rochester. I worked in the city, lived in Farmington. As I was driving home, I realized something had changed in my life, and all of a sudden, all these questions I had, I didn't have anymore. It was inexplicable. But what had happened is the Holy Spirit of God came into my life, you came into my situation, and when he does, because he is the answer, and when he comes into your life, man, it's amazing how quickly there's a lot of things that are, that are mysteries, that are questions, um, that are maybe uh, you know, thorny issues in our life, how often when he comes into our life and our experience, um, we find those things answered. <clears throat> now, looking at uh, chapter 10. Uh, John says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, face was like the sun, his feet were like pillars of fire. So immediately here we are faced with a question, who is this mighty angel? And sometimes too, when you read commentaries, you get a different answer. Uh, I, I, you know, I probably have on any book of the Bible, I, might, I probably have somewhere between five and ten commentaries. And sometimes when you read some of these uh, um, theological viewpoints from, from scholars and theologians, and some of them are just pastors. Uh, it's amazing sometimes how the, the question, uh, you know, that you may have is answered in a different way. And I don't know if you've ever read this chapter before. I'm, I'm assuming that you have. Uh, I don't know what your answer was regarding this whole mighty angel, but we find he comes in a cloud, he's wearing a rainbow, uh, his face is radiating like the sun, his feet are on fire. Folks, this is Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These are all signatures of deity. Remember we saw his profile over in chapter 1? Okay, rainbow over the, th the throne. And all these other things really fit, you know, his persona and his personage there. Uh, the word angel, interesting, I find is interesting because remember here in chapter 10, we are on Jewish ground. Okay, and one of the things that the Jews have always have always appreciated was in the Old Testament. You can see as you read the Old Testament in these visitations by who? The angel of the Lord. Okay? He was deity. That's why in instances, you know, he would, he would be worshipped. 
And if it was an ordinary angel, they would, you know, they would basically resist that uh, and inform the person who bowed down before them, uh, you know, worship God, I'm just basically, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm basically his delivery boy. Uh, so sometimes we find that this word angel also is, is translated in the word messenger. Uh, we find that oftentimes, because that's what an angel basically is. He's a messenger. And uh, also to the, last, the very last book of the Bible, excuse me, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, that it tells us there in chapter 3, verse 1, that God says two times about the Messiah, he refers to him as my messenger and the messenger of the covenant. And, and Malachi is basically before that 400-year lapse and separation that this messenger, the Messiah, is coming. And if you read Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, uh, you see that. So what we have here, what we're establishing right away, is this is the Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Now we find that he has a little book uh, in his hand. It's opened in his hand. Uh, and, he's, and he has set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried with a loud voice as a lion roars. Uh, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. So he stands there basically in all of his might, all of his glory. And what he's doing here, he's laying claim to his, to, to his creation. He, he stands there, and, and he, as he comes, he's laying claim. You see, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And even though he allows man to do what man wants to do, oh, you know, the, the, the pride of man today, in their rejection of God, um, some of the things that you hear, you know, proud and arrogant people saying, you know, about God or about the Bible or about Christianity. There's a day coming. He, and, and, and in his grace, in his mercy, he allows people to say those things. And he allows people, he gives people that, that opportunity to live their life and to do what they simply want to do. But the Bible clearly reminds us there's a day of reckoning coming. There's a day of accounting coming that each person will have to give an account of their life, as Paul tells us in Romans 14, I think it's verse 11, uh, the deeds that are done in the body. And even you and I, you and I will stand before the Lord, won't we? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that. Uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter 5, tells us about the Bema seat. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ. Our judgment's not a judgment of heaven and hell. It is for the unbelieving world. Our judgment is a judgment basically relative to rewards. You know, what rewards, what, what privilege place are you and me going to have in the kingdom that is predicated upon our serving and our faithfulness uh, and our giving ourselves to Jesus Christ in this life. So what we do here matters as a believer. It's not a matter of, of you know, uh, being separated from Christ for eternity. That's not the issue with you and I. With you and I, it's basically be about rewards uh, and our place, you know, in that future kingdom. But basically here, uh, what we find is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this little book, too, also, uh, it, it's, it, what it is, is, is it's a, a record here of these future judgments. These future judgments, this final series of judgments that's going to take place. So as he cries out, it's a very loud voice. Uh, it's like a line roaring, and it sounds like thunder. You know, I was thinking of that. Uh, you know, there's a, there was a time, too, I think it was in John chapter 12, when Jesus spoke, uh, or, or when heaven spoke to Jesus, rather, and there were some thunders. And, uh, and it's interesting that uh, nobody, nobody could hear what was being said but Jesus. 
In other words, that thunder, in a sense, was just for him. And I was thinking about, you know what, you know what the, you know what, you know what's being cried out today? Remember Jesus in John chapter seven, verse thirty-seven. He said, "If any, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink." And and if you believe on me, out of your innermost being will flow torrents of living water. Man, that's what the Lord's crying right now, uh, giving us, you know, giving the, the world, you know, an opportunity. And I think, too, even in a sense, for, for you and I as believers, isn't it really an ongoing thing where the Lord's saying, if you're thirsty, come to me? Because I think even as a believer, there's still a thirst. There, there's an ongoing hunger and a thirst. You know, what did Jesus say in the, in the Beatitudes? Uh, if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we will be filled and be careful that you don't allow, you know, some inner desire, you know, some inner thirst or some inner hunger take you in the wrong way. Because you know what? Satan's always offering something up, isn't he? He's always off offering up some little dainty, uh, you know, some little spiritual twinkie. And, uh, and, and, you know, it looks good. But I'll tell you what, after you eat it, uh, it, 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 more than anything, it really is bitter, you know, in your belly. And when the seven thunders, verse 4, uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. In other words, this was for John's ears only. Because why? He represents the church in heaven. Do you know, we may not know what, what that is right now, but you know what? We're going to know because we're going to be in heaven with John. John's representative of the church. Remember we saw that early on in chapter 4? which was representative of the translation and of the rapture, when the Lord says to John, John, come up here, come up hither. Uh, that's the church being taken out after chapter 2 and 3, which is the church age. Uh, so we see a, a chronological order there, chapter 4, not only is John in heaven, but we're in heaven with him. And so as John, just like you and I, when we're in heaven, when we hear these seven thunders, we're going to know exactly what it is, just like John. It was for John's ears only, and it's really for the ears of the church. You know what I love? There's a verse in, the, in one of the Psalms that says, The secret of the Lord is with those who love him. The secret of the Lord is with those who love him or those who fear him. Isn't it wonderful to realize that there are, there are secret things that you know? That, that's what I love about spending time with the Lord. That there's going to be something that's going to whisper in your spirit. It's just, just something for you. It's just going to be some, some, something, some kind of encouragement, you know, some kind of whisper of love. And I'll tell you what, you need those. We need those. We need those times where we're sitting alone with the Lord, you know, with the, with the Bible open and our hearts open, and we're allowing him to speak with us. To me, to me that, that is so precious. That, that is so important and so necessary, you know, for the Christian life that we are spending time with him and allowing him to, allowing him to speak into our life. Because I'll tell you what, there's a lot of things in life that agitate you, that, that bug you, that bother you, that can just sort of like a, like, a, like a little bug can burrow their way into your spiritual life and you're feeling the impact of it, the effect of it. And man, we need to come to the Lord. And, and as we do, as we sit before Him, that, that he'll, he'll, he'll nurture us. 
He'll cherish us. We'll sense his love, his, 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 his encouragement. Let me ask you, when's the last time that you got alone with Jesus with your Bible? Because I want to tell you what, here's the problem that we all have. We're, we're too doggone distracted. That, 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 that's, that impacts everybody. We, we've got something to do, somewhere to go. Some, somebody, you know, pulling at us. Especially, too, if you've got, you got children, you've got little kids. I, I never, some, when we're around uh, our, our children with their children, I just, you know, when you're a younger parent for some reason, I, I don't know if it, it's the fact that you're so distracted that you don't realize how distracting they are. And I just wonder about, you know, I wonder about young moms with, 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 with little children. Do they ever have time to get away and to just, you know, get um, alone with the Lord? I remember one time Margie went on a women's retreat for the weekend, and I had all the kids. Oh, boy. When she got back, that was, that was uh, wifey appreciation day. We had one, our one daughter, she had uh, colic. And I think I walked around with her <laughs> hours, endless hours, because she was always crying as soon as, you know, she ate something. Um, and uh, so when Margie got home that Sunday, it's like, oh, honey, <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> Don't ever go away again. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it was important for her to get away. And, and it's important for us. You know, we've always got something pressing in, you know, to our life. Um, you know, just, you know, and the, the pro one of the problems is we don't have a phone on a wall anymore. It's in our pocket. And, and it does. It just, it drives you crazy when you feel that little, and it's just like, as, as if, you know, you're going to miss some urgent thing. And it's just some stupid mail thing you know, coming into your phone. Now, looking at verse 5, see if you recognize this, this act here, because it's become some, somewhat of a tradition in our, in our society. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. Now, this basically has become a courtroom practice. It finds its origins here. Where you stand there with your hand up. So is the right hand up, left hand on the Bible? Is that how it goes? You got any lawyers here? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I don't know if they do that, even do that anymore. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, I got to throw, you know, throw something out. You know, you can't. <laughs> I'm surprised they even do it at all anymore. One time uh, I was talking to one of our, years ago, one of our teen pastors. And uh, it was relative to something that many of these teens were going through, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't tell the truth. They just wouldn't tell the truth. And so I said, well, why don't you do this? Have them put their hand on the Bible. <laughs> His eyes lit up. Oh, yeah, that'll work, you know, kind of a thing. But... Um, Remember, in Hebrews, it tells us that God can swear by no higher authority. So he what? He swears by himself. 
And that's what we see taking place here. And basically what it is that there should be delay no longer. You know, how many times the righteous soul has cried out, Oh, Lord, how long? Have you ever cried that? Have you ever maybe prayed that or cried that in your own life? I tell you what, when there are certain times I read certain phrases in the Bible that they so resonate with me. And, and that is one that has always resonated with me regarding, you know, irrespective of what the writer was going through, I related to it because of what I was going through. Lord, how long is it going to be before you intervene? Lord, how long is it going to be before you change this trial? Lord, before you end this crisis, that is something that we see that has taken place in the heart of the righteous individual all the way through, you know, Bible history. Lord, how long? How long before you intervene? And of course, you know, when you think about what the Jew of old was praying and thinking about in the Old Testament, was it coming a Messiah? That's what they were thinking about. They were thinking about, he's going to come. Because the Bible constantly the Old Testament was punctuated by the fact of there's a coming one. There's going to be one who's going to come. He's going to bring justice. He's going to straighten out all the, all the wrongs and things that take place in our culture, in our world, our society. And see, for you and I, like John, we are saying, oh, Lord, come quickly. Folks, there's going to be a lot of things, you know what? It, it, seems, it seems interesting to me also, too, that justice is becoming a harder thing to find. I mean, there's been, inju- there's been injustice sometimes even, even through judicial systems. But, but it seems to be more and more, you know, it's like Isaiah said, we see truth fallen in the street. What he's saying there is truth in the main street is being just basically thrown out and walked on. And when we throw truth out of our culture, out of our society, something other than truth and righteousness will fill that void. That's the way it is, whether it's in the life of the individual or the life of the culture and the society. When you throw throw truth out, there will be something that will become the substitute. And that's why the Bible tells us simply it will be a lie. It'll be a lie. It'll be something other than the truth. That's why it's so important that you and I, you know, we're to walk in truth. We're to live in truth. You know, truth, uh, sometimes, you know, even to us can be a painful thing. You know, as it brings conviction, you know, as it speaks into our own life to correct, you know, some issue. But how important it is is to allow the truth of God and God's word to have its way with us. Because I'll tell you what, you know, the scripture says, I sent forth my word, which is always, you know, a synonym for truth. I sent forth my word and I healed them. Man, when we receive the truth of God into our life, it has a wonderful healing ability to it as we embrace it, even though initially it may convict us, um, you know, it may uh, not be a, a welcome visitor, but how important it is that when God sends his truth to us in some particular way, uh, that we embrace it, that we open up and allow God's truth to have its way and to work in our particular life and in our particular situation. So again, the, the ultimate answer to every prayer, do you realize is the coming of Jesus Christ? That, that's the ultimate answer to every prayer. 
It's, it, 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 that, that's why the Bible has so much to speak about prophecy. It's speaking basically to the fact that the Lord's going to come. He's going to correct things. He's going to establish his kingdom. There's not going to be the kingdom. Don't believe that baloney when people, even Christians, are trying to make the kingdom here and now. The kingdom is yet to come. The kingdom comes when Jesus Christ arrives on this earth and he sets up his kingdom. Anything short of that is not the kingdom. And that's what we look forward to. That's why, that's why we're even told to pray what? Thy kingdom come. And that's why when Jesus said, I think it's in Luke, when he said the kingdom, when he said the kingdom was in you is, is a poor translation. It should, it should be. Uh, and many translations have corrected that when he said the kingdom is in your midst. In other words, the kingdom was in their midst by the person of the king. And if the Jews would have accepted Jesus Christ instead of putting him on the cross, you realize the kingdom would have begun? We would have gone right into a kingdom phase. And remember, that's what the disciples were thinking when Jesus came and the triumphal entry. This is it. People are, you know, palm trees. People are throwing their clothes down. The crowds are cheering him. And all the disciples are thinking, man, this is it. They, they finally recognized and realized, the Lord, he's here. And within a week, he was on a cross. Man, were the disciples shocked. You talk about a depression. Man, that's a, that's a depression, you know, none of us can even imagine. After being on a three-year roll, you know, Miracles every day taking place. And they witnessed that, raising people from the dead, feeding thousands of people, walking on the water. In other words, there's nothing that he cannot do. They knew it. But they didn't know of his sacrifice. They didn't know his plan and purpose in redeeming the world. Yes, he will set up his kingdom, but they were a little bit early on that one. Now, he says this here, but in the days of the sounding, verse 7, the sounding of the uh, seventh angel, and that's where we are in these trumpet judgments. And one of the things that we have seen when the seven seals um, were open, the seventh seal basically uh, led right in and opened up the seven trumpets. And so when we get to this seventh trumpet, uh, also, too, we're going to find that there's going to be, they're going to lead right into the seven bowls, the seven bowl judgments, the three different series of judgments that are going to take place during this seven-year uh, period. So uh, there should be de- delay no longer. Uh, and that the mystery of God, verse 7, would be finished as he declared to his prof- the servants, the prophets. So, again, at this particular time, Every mystery would be solved. You know, there's two chief mysteries here that I see uh, that are put to rest during this period. Uh, in other words, they're, they're, they're totally revealed. And that is simply this. The mystery, remember Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the mystery of iniquity or the mystery of lawlessness. See, we saw it in Florida, in Parkland, Florida. The, the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of lawlessness. And that has to do with, 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 with sin and Satan. And he will be fully exposed 
during this seven-year period, and he will be incarcerated after it. And he will not be active in the millennial kingdom. Got an amen on that one? <laughs> That's worth an amen. Because he's very active today. And he's, as a matter of fact, he knows his time is short. And that's why, in a sense, he is raising all kinds of hell here on earth because he knows his time is short. And I think one of the, I think the, this, the, this is one of the, the, the main mysteries that I think will be put um, uh, basically to, to, to bed, if you will, in silence, the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of iniquity. The other one will be basically concerning Israel. A lot of people don't realize, you know, why are we in the Middle East? What's so important over there? Well, it may not be important to most of the Gentile world, but it's very important to God. And you know what? It needs to be important to you and me. It needs to be important to you and me because God is fulfilling his promises to his Jewish people. That's one of the, remember, that's one of the main things. Um, two main things in the tribulation period, real main, main things, okay? That is putting down insurrection, rebellion, uh, and the unbelief and rejection of God that's in the world. He's going to put that down. But the second one is probably actually the, most, the more important one, and that is basically the restoration of the nation Israel and the revealing to them of the Messiah that they rejected. Remember, Zechariah speaks about that. They're going to they're see him coming and with the wounds in his hands. And say, where'd you get the wounds? I got it in the house of my friends. And, and we're told there in Zechariah that the nation is just going to mourn. They're going to mourn in brokenness and in repentance. Isn't it, in a sense, oftentimes in our life as well, when Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, steps into the equation of your life, it's often attended to by tears. Tears and, and brokenness and godly sorrow. They're sweet tears, aren't they? They are especially sweet tears uh, that we have um, you know, regarding the love of God you know, coming into our lives. You know, the grace of God for forgiving us you know, for what we've done, what we've said. Turn to uh, Romans 11. I just want to give you a few verses here in Romans 11. And remember, I, I, uh, uh, at least a week or two or maybe three ago, uh, we referred to this little um, section here in the, in the middle of the book of Romans where Paul, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he explains basically the whole issue regarding the Jewish people related to us as believers, that we need to understand what God's doing. And as I said before, you got 9, 10, 11. 9 is Israel past. 10 is Israel present. 11 is Israel future. So you need to maybe just sort of, I, I've got that, you know, I've put that into my Bible um, because it's very important to put it in a, into a context and into a perspective uh, regarding the nation Israel. And, and, and again, our, our uh, view uh, as we realize what God is doing, you know, with them, that we're to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, Paul says uh, over later in, in Romans, I think 15, that we owe a debt. We literally owe a debt to the Jewish people because why? We're wild olive branches that have been grafted in uh, to this tree, so to speak, and to use that as a, as a metaphor, as an analogy of God working as he worked through them 
Because remember, our Messiah is a, was a Jew. And, uh, you know, because of, you know, God's promises, his covenants, you know, to the Jewish people. And again, you know, this whole church age thing, it's a parenthesis. It's a little parenthesis, if you will, where God says, okay, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, this family, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just put right here. I'm going to set you right here. And now I'm working in the world. Now, he's, not, he's, he, he's still saving Jews, but he's, he's still saving Jews and Gentiles on equal footing. See, before, it was just them. And you, you can, when you look in the Gospels, you can see that. Remember the Gentile, the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus? And he didn't want to, he, you know, he's like ignoring her. And, and she says to him, well, master. Um, and she realized that, that he was the Savior, the Messiah, for the Jew. And she, but she says, master, uh, even the little puppies will have a, eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And he looked at her and he said, such great faith. <laughs> he answered her. He gave her a request. But now we, we, we have our opportunity. So when that window closes, all of a sudden, focus once again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Jewish family. And Paul tells us about that here. But look what he says here in uh, Romans 11, 20, 25 through 29. For I, desi- I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part, just partial, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's us. That's the church. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I kind of think that last Gentile is out there somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. I think that should kind of motivate us to get out there with the gospel, huh? You might be the one. You know, it's like the lottery ticket. You might be the one who leads that last Gentile to Christ. And I kind of wonder if it's going to happen instantaneously. He comes to Christ. We're out of here. I don't know. I'm just, this speculation. Divine, or, or uh, spiritual, you know, sanctified speculation. So he says here in verse 26, So all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, from the Jews. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here reminding us of an Old Testament promise and verse uh, that is going to take place during this seven-year period. Now, verse 28, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for our sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, the patriarchs, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. I'll tell you what, you can praise God for that. Because that same calling in your life, the fact that he has chosen you, that's irrevocable. Amen? And I'll tell you, that's something to really toot your horn about. That's something to really praise the Lord about. Thank you, Lord, that in spite of my stupidness and my failures, you're not finished with me. Thank you, God. And I think also, too, there's, there's one more mystery that Paul speaks about. And that's over in, uh, uh, excuse me, um, Ephesians chapter 2. 
And, and he speaks simply about how he makes Jew and Gentile one. In other words, what, one of the, the, the wording that he uses there is that he removes the wall of separation. But it's not only, in a sense, just between Jew and Gentile. And the, and the, the wall between Jew and Gentile was a spiritual wall, it was a social wall, and it was a racial wall. And you see, here is God's solution to all the things that separate people today. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting when you got the Lord in your heart, when things aren't right between you and somebody else, and the Holy Spirit's just kind of, he's bugging you? He's probing your heart. He's prompting you and saying, get that right, get that right. And I, I know sometimes we got our excuses, don't we? Well, it's their fault, Lord. Or, 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 or they don't deserve it. Maybe they don't. But we don't either. He's the one that removes the walls that go up between people. And you know what? Look at our, look at our world today. Look at our nation today. Look, look, at, look at the walls that separate people. You know, look, at, look at the racial issues in our day. In our day. It's tragic. It, it's sad. But they should not be in the church. That's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, what? We are reconcilers. We are reconcilers. I was reading something as this week, and uh, it was by Dr. Henry Morris. It was a little devotional piece. And he, and he springboards off of this verse that God hath made one blood of all nations. And, what he's, and he, it's interesting here, he says, and I'll just read an excerpt from this. He says, he says, thus, there is no biblical basis for racism or any notion that one race is intrinsically superior to any other. Racism has its basis in evolutionism. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't realize that, that racism is rooted in evolution, that there's one group superior over the other group. Racism has its basis in evolutionism. The idea of so-called races uh, have been evolving independently uh, for 50,000 years or more. Racism has its roots in pre-Darwinian systems of evolutionary pantheism. But Darwin and most other uh, evolutionists of the 19th century, both in Europe and America, were strong racists and gave, and gave it pseudo-scientific sanction with their notions of struggle for existence and natural selection. He brings out something very interesting here. He says, racist thought continued to dominate anthropology until the ardent evolutionist Adolf Hitler gave it a bad name with, with Aryan racism in World War II. Modern evangelists, uh, excuse me, modern evolutionists have now largely abandoned the racist ideas of, of, of Darwin, Huxley, Haeckel, uh, but evolutionary theory still naturally lends itself to such applications. He closes with this thought, no, in, no case, in any case, no Christian should harbor any concept of racial superiority, for we have been renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created us, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen? That's very important for us to realize. And I, I've said, I've put it in different words. We're not better than anybody. We're better off. 
We're better off because of what Christ has done for us. And you know, I, I, another article I was reading this week. Here's what, here is the founder, the mother of Planned Parenthood. Mar Margaret Sanger. Here's what she said. We do not want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. Everybody tends to think Planned Parenthood is a nice, wonderful family. And they've shifted over because they've been exposed from trying to exterminate the Negro population to the world population. And I've, I've seen some articles. Praise God, praise God that the church and, and many groups in, in Africa are really pushing, pushing back against this extermination colonialism that's coming through abortion. Okay, let's move on here. <clears throat> uh, now John hears a voice from heaven basically commanding him in verse 8 uh, to take the book and to eat it. Now what we, when we come to this, we're basically we're looking at something symbolic, symbolic language. Then the voice which I heard, excuse me, from heaven spoke to me again and said, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so I went to the angel and I said to him, give me that little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Now this was not to be done literally. This is a, a, a symbolic thing. You know, sometimes uh, folks have... Uh, you know, Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, was he speaking literally? I don't think so. Okay. He says, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Okay. We all be handless around here. Okay. And, and footless, too. The, the, there was a king once, uh, King Menelik II. He was a Christian. He was a good guy. A uh, very forward-thinking guy uh, regarding his country. He brought in, at the time, he brought in the railroad. He brought in public education, um, the telegraph and the telephone, and, and uh, really tried to update his country, expanded the borders of his country and so forth. But he had, one, uh, he had one kind of backward belief. And that was whenever he got sick, he'd tear off a few pages of the Bible and eat it. And... Uh, and I think perhaps maybe, you know, he probably read uh, something in the Bible here uh, relative to that, maybe John's. Uh, but we find this also, too, this uh, reference to, part, you know, partaking um, of, of the Word of God uh, in Ezekiel's life as well. Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah says, you know, uh, I, I, I discovered, you know, I found your Word, and it has been sweet, you know, to my taste. Um, Psalm 19 speaks about it, uh, speaking about it being sweeter uh, than the honeycomb. Um, you know, Ezekiel uh, refers to the sweetness of God's word. But what he's speaking about here is this basically uh, allowing the word of God's truth to assimilate into our lives. Just allowing it to get into our life, get into our heart. Um, you know, what, what does the Lord say? Taste and see that I am good. Now, we can't taste the Lord. But what happens is when we spiritually open up our lives and, bring, and allow him to come in. You know, we, we've, we've, and that's why one of the stumbling things that Jesus said in John chapter 6, um, and if you remember that account, um, and he was speaking spiritually, he said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and he knew, he knew 
when he said that. Speaking to Jews, that that was going to seem repulsive to them. But I think he was simply checking them out enough. Do they have the spiritual perception to understand what I'm saying? And it says in John chapter 6, verse 66, many of his disciples at that time had turned and walked with him no longer. And he didn't stop them. He didn't stop them. He was allowing, just like, you know what? He, he, he allows you and me to wrestle with truth. There's some things that we come to the Bible and we just kind of, we, 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 we wrestle with it. We, we struggle with it. So be careful that you don't find yourself walking away when the truth and the word of God challenges you. Because there's always something that, you know, a lot of times, you know, in the spiritual life, things seem bitter. I think when we're first facing the gospel and we hear the claims of it, we think, well, you know, if I become a Christian, I can't do this, that, and the other thing in my life. So therefore, I don't think I want to do that. that. That just seems, you know, that seems a little bitter to me. But I'll tell you what, once you, once you taste of the Lord, once you partake of His truth in your life, it stirs up a hunger and a desire. I want more. I desire more. Blessed are those, you know, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. We need to be careful that we don't, there's, you know, there's certain things that I've turned my nose up to when it comes to food. We were talking about this. We were at lunch talking about this the other day. A couple of us were talking about things we don't like. You know, what's the main thing I don't like? The main thing I don't like? Liver. Ugh. I mean, my parents made me eat it when I was a kid, but, you know, it's like, uh, 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 uh. I, I don't think I ever got it down. And another thing the Marine Corps did to me is lima beans. I imagine each one of those things would be good for you if you can get it beyond your palate. But I think, you know, God wants us to just, he, he wants us to linger and meditate over his word. There's a sweet, I think there's a sweetness in every verse. You know, I noticed that uh, I'm diabetic. I noticed because I, I, I like sugar. Anybody else like that? No, no. And as I've been cutting back on it, I, I've noticed how things can be naturally sweet. There are certain things that I could never detect it before. I, and I, I think it's like that with God and with, with, with the Bible. We're, we're so distracted from the cotton candy of the world that when we sit down with the Bible, it's like, you know, we're sleeping. You know, the Bible bores me, you know, kind of a thing. But I think it's only because that we, we you know, we've got so much other cotton candy and things uh, you know, on our, in, you know, in our lives. And, and I think that we need to wean some of those things out of our lives. And to sit down and, you know, with God's word 
and just meditate it and draw this sweetness. And, and sometimes it's like, you know, as I've been moving away from sweet stuff and candy, I've just rediscovered how wonderfully sweet fruit is. Like those little halos. Oh, gosh. Like, I, like I want to eat three at a time. But I, when my taste is adjusted to candy, I, I don't want fruit. Don't give me fruit. But that's the good stuff, isn't it? God's got something good and rich for each one of us. Now, again, this John, in John's case, the, this prophecy um, was a strong word. It had a, a bitter taste that impacted him because it was, it was a prophecy of judgment. Again, we, we've seen many instances in the Bible where the word of God was sweet to the heart and to the, to the, to the soul. This one here it was a strong word. And so John says, and we'll wrap it up with this here. And then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And as sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I'd eaten it, my stomach had become bitter. I believe that there's a really important principle here uh, in these verses. I think that we, we, we need to realize in order to move forward, in order to really grow in Christ and to develop into healthy believers, that, that we need to allow God's truth to penetrate the, the shell of our lives. That's what's going to change us. When we allow God's truth to penetrate the, 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 the shell of our lives, get into the core, to really make a change. Because you know what? When the Holy Spirit convicts us, and He does, it can be painful. It can feel like a cut. Re remember? when Stephen was preaching, and it said about those who were, who were Bible-based people. They were Bible-based. And when he spoke and gave the history, their history, it said they were cut to the heart. You see, sometimes we get a strong word, and it can cut us. Or it could seem bitter to us. And I think we need to, if we want to grow, don't allow yourself as a Christian to plateau. That's a danger for the Christian life. I've been through, I've been through some trials. I've been through some situations. I've walked with the Lord for 20, 25 years, 30 years. I'm just going to take it easy and plateau. No, you're going to backslide is what you're going to do. There, there is no plateau or safe place for the child of God. And sometimes God's will and God's word to us can be bitter to our soul. You need to push back against that. Because if the Lord is speaking something to our heart, we need it, beloved. We need it. There's safety in it. There's blessing in it. There's something good, wonderful in it. And I think it's important that when maybe we get a bitter cup, we need to drink it. We need to obey his voice. We need to let God have his way. And I want to close with these words of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in his prayer in the garden when he said, Abba, Father, very endearing, precious words. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. So I think to hide or, or to struggle with a difficult thing in your life, to want to go the other way, to want to, want to not drink that cup, to want to evade it in some kind of way, is very, very natural. And of course, the cup that the Lord Jesus Christ had was much different than the cup you and I will ever have. But he, he was given that cup because he could handle it. And if God gives you and I a cup that may seem bitter or difficult, his grace will be there. You see, the drinking of his cup meant the salvation and the blessing of all humanity. The drinking and partaking of our cup as well will not only bring personal blessing, but it will bring blessing to other people. I believe that God's will for each and every one of us, that there's a crimson thread of redemption that's woven into everything that God has designed for your life and my life. And I think a lot of times we don't realize that God's will for our life, God's purpose for our life, God's plan for our life is that through you and through me and through our obedience, God will touch and impact and change the lives of other people. Do you believe that? You need to believe that. Because that will spur us on to trust and obedience and committing ourselves to the Lord no matter what it is that we have to face. As we close in prayer, if maybe you're facing a difficult situation, maybe you're in a bitter circumstance, Your faith is being challenged. I want you to stand because I want to pray for you as we close. God bless you all. Dear Father, how, Lord, we look to you this morning. And we're thankful, Lord, that this time period that we just read about, Lord, we don't have to endure that. Yet, Lord, we find that in so many ways our lives are challenged. And some of us had to endure bitter circumstances and situations. And sometimes, Lord, these things can embitter our souls. 
So, Lord, we believe that, that the government is upon your shoulders and that we can give you these things and we can ask in their place, Lord, faith, trust, obedience, and an ongoing desire, Lord, to surrender our lives to you. Father, I pray that you'd bless each and every one of these dear folks. We give to you now, Lord, the things that concern us, too heavy, too big. Lord, thank you that you're the burden bearer. Thank you, Lord, that you promised that you'd give, not give us anything that would be too great for us. So, Father, I pray that as we go back, Lord, into this world, into our lives, that, Lord, we would sense your presence. We would sense, Lord, I pray, new power. <coughs> power to trust you. Power to say yes to you and no to all the other things. We ask it, Father, and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we all rise?